Today, uh, the scripture is Mark 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. God, please help Pastor Drew make an amazing sermon today. And let's hope that everyone comes to the Operation Christmas Child thing today after church. Amen. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate you, buddy. I think I maybe had mentioned it before, but Evan and I were on the same crew for World Changers in Chattanooga this last summer, and uh, we had a lot of fun. I was proud of him because he was one of the few students on our crew who was brave enough to get up on a roof and do some work. And so uh, we were mostly painting this house, and it was pretty tall. On the back, there was uh, a back porch with a roof on it, and you know, we didn't know how stable that roof really was, you know, but uh, Evan didn't care, and so he got up on it, and he, and he got to work, and I realized a couple of days in that part of the reason why he did that was because it was one of the few shaded spots around the house, and so I thought, man, I got to give him credit, you know, like brave and smart, right, so that's a, that's a good combination. I think that describes him well, brave and smart, and so appreciate you, Evan, and uh, we very much love and appreciate the Pruitt family. And, uh, and good morning, church. It's uh, great to be with you. Uh, I want to begin our time in the Word together by asking if you recognize this statement. So do you recognize this statement? Here it is. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Have you heard that before? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Uh, that's from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. That was part of Joseph's testimony. It's a familiar story to us. And Joseph, he faithfully endured trials. And uh, it wasn't because of his own doing. It's because of the evil intention of others. And that even included for him, even his own brothers. And I was reminded of this verse the other day when talking with a friend of mine and a pastor of a local church. And he was talking about how he was currently going through a season of difficulty and it was because of the evil intention of others, and in his case, it even happened to be denominational leaders. And he was saying about how he was using that verse to help him stay encouraged and hopeful. And I know that there may be many of us here this morning that, you know, that the truth of that verse could be something that we testify to, right? That that's true, that what was meant for evil for us, God was able to use that for good. He used it in our own life, and he used it 
through our life for the good of others. And so, I don't know, maybe this morning, maybe there's somebody here who needed that reminder. You needed that encouragement. Maybe you're walking through a season of difficulty and you need to remember that, no, what was meant for evil, God is meaning for good. Uh, But really kind of the, the main reason why I bring this up is because I think we've been seeing this exemplified in Mark chapter 12. So think about this. The religious leaders had been going after Jesus. They'd been going after him with these controversial questions. They'd been trying to get Jesus to say something that might discredit himself. They wanted the crowds to turn on him. Ultimately, they wanted Jesus to be arrested by Rome. And so they'd been going after him, but yet God was still using that situation for good. Ultimately, it was the part of the process that would lead Jesus to his crucifixion and resurrection, and which is the ultimate good. But even if you think about what we're looking at today, for our purposes today, right, we've got in Mark 12 an opportunity for us to gain this amazing insight into the Word of God from the teaching of the embodiment of truth himself. I mean, what was meant for evil, God meant it for good. And so we'll experience that today in this passage. If you hadn't yet, would you grab a Bible and find it? Mark 12, 28 to 34. If you're new to Sale Street, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark this year from the very beginning of the year, from January. We're just working our way through. A uh, quick little review here. The first 10 chapters, what we saw was Jesus had just been putting his identity on display that he really was the Christ. He really was the Son of God. He primarily displayed it through his supernatural miracles and through his supernatural teaching. He really was the Son of Man of Daniel 7, that Messiah King of God's kingdom. But then as we got into chapter 11, we saw that the story started to slow down. And on into chapter 16, there is this emphasis on the last week of Jesus where he also shows himself to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he shows that by allowing himself to be rejected. And as we'll see soon in Mark, he's going to also be arrested and then crucified. But of course, the story didn't end there. It ends with Jesus' glorious resurrection. Uh, More specifically, where we've been recently, we need to remember that Jesus had entered into Jerusalem amidst the praise of Uh, this crowd of thousands of people, yet he knew how that week would still end, and he went following the will of the Father. He went into the temple, he cleared it out, and then he issued this indictment on their whole corrupt religious system, and he issued an indictment on the hypocritical religious leaders, which of course offended them, and that's often the case when it comes to self-righteous legalists, isn't it? Jesus offends them. And since pride and power were their idols, they challenged Jesus' authority. They began that plot to have him arrested. And again, what they're trying to do is, man, we're afraid of the crowds here in this moment. The crowds like him. And so if we can just get him to say something that might expose himself, right then the crowds will turn, Romans will arrest him. And so the plot began to be carried out. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians teamed up. And they go after him with a controversial political question. But what happened? That backfired, right? They were trying to trap him, but then he was amazing everybody with his answer. Then last week, we saw the Sadducees, they give it a shot with a more theological question. But 
Same result, round two went to Jesus again, and he not only proved that they were wrong, but he said they were quite wrong. And so everything for the religious leaders in Mark 12, it wouldn't go in how they had planned, and that'll continue in this passage. So we're picking up here, it's like round three, and uh, picking up in verse 28. And as you heard it read, you probably thought this is a familiar passage, but yet it's so profound and we're going to see what, what was meant for evil. God's going to take it and use it for good in our lives today. And so here, let's pick up. We're picking up here, uh, verse 28, and with the scribes' question. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all Jesus. And so here it says a scribe came up. These scribes were scholars. Uh, they were pretty special because they could write, you know. And uh, a lot of them were part of the Pharisees. But these, these scribes were really lawyers. In fact, if you read Matthew's account of the same story, it says that a lawyer went up to Jesus. They specialized in interpreting the law of the Old Testament and also rabbinic traditions. And so you could imagine, maybe picture a Harvard Law student going up to someone and then wanting to test them about the United States law. It's kind of got this feel here with this scene. And there's some debate about what the intentions were of this particular scribe. You know, because there are people who would say that when this guy goes up to Jesus, he really just seemed to be more curious. He was just sincere with his question. And I understand that, right? It kind of says in Mark's account that, I mean, he's kind of impressed with how Jesus was answering the questions. But if you only read Mark's gospel, I get it. But if you also read Matthew's gospel and you read that account, it also includes this. This is Matthew 23, or 22, 34 to 35. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. And so this is the, the same instance as Mark 12. They gathered together. And one of them, so one of the Pharisees that gathered together, as this, you know, this little huddle kind of plotting together, it says one of them was a lawyer, that scribe. And so the scribe wasn't somebody who just happened to be walking by, heard Jesus teaching, was intrigued, and then had a question for him. No, he was part of that plot. And so it says that lawyer asked him a question to do what? To test him to test him. This wasn't like a little quiz. This is what, how can I trap Jesus? Now, I will say, I will acknowledge that this interaction between Jesus and the scribe, it definitely has a different feel than it did with the, with the first two questions here. And so maybe it was that the scribe had been listening to Jesus that day, and maybe he had beginning to experience a, a heart change after hearing him, but yet still, at least initially, his question was a part of that ploy of the Pharisees. And so, imagine all of this, right? They huddle up, they're kind of drawing up another plan, they're like, oh, but we got to throw Hail Mary on this, this is not working out. Here's the scribe, he goes up to Jesus with the first couple questions that they ask. The Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed about, really the answer to all those questions, but here's a question now that they would agree with the answer on. This was a primary issue for everyone who was listening. They asked, or the scribe asked, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, they're going, in the Mosaic Law, in the first five books of the Bible, 
what's the one, what's that one command that we need to worry about most? I think a little background on this is helpful to understand really what this guy is asking and to get some of the meaning behind the question. Because questions about the commandments of God were a normal topic of debate for the Jewish people at this time, especially among the rabbis. Over time, they had determined that there were 613 commandments or 613 laws in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law. And a little fun fact here, part of the reason why they said it was 613 is because if you count the number of Hebrew letters there are in the Ten Commandments, it's 613. And so they develop this amount, right? And so they're laying them out, they adding their own. They divided up the 613 into positive and negative. Positive is, here's the stuff you got to do. The negative is, is, here's the stuff you can't do, right? The, all the thou shalt nots. There were 248 positive, 365 negative, you know, because we need one for every day. And, uh, and so then, though, and we can't miss this part, after they had laid out and determined 613 laws, what do they realize? They realize we can't follow these, right? There's no way that we can do all of these. And so then they divided them up among the heavy laws or the weighty laws and the light laws. The weighty laws, the heavy laws were, what do we have to do? What does God really care about? And then the light laws were more of, uh, what can we do? I mean, if nobody's looking, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. And so when we think about this idea, it's actually... Not that there's really much that's wrong with it. I mean, we do this all the time with our law, right? We know that there's a huge difference between murdering somebody and then going a few miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, that's just two totally different categories. And I'm not saying like God's laws are the same as ours in the United States. I'm just saying that idea is similar. And in fact, Jesus references it himself. There was a time he criticized the Pharisees and he said, you're ignoring the weighty matters of the law. He said, you're, you're, you're tithing your spices, which is kind of ridiculous, and then you're ignoring things like justice and mercy, the things that God really cares about. And so we do have this idea in Scripture, but yet that really wasn't the intention of these rabbis. The intention was, what can we do to prove that we are still in right standing with God? What can we do to keep him happy with us? What can we focus on where we can say, yeah, we're following the law, but even when we mess up, well, those are the light ones. It doesn't really matter. This was motivated by self-righteousness and legalism, and so that's why they're debating this all the time. What are the things that matter? And really, what's the commandment that matters most? What's number one? We got to make sure we follow that. And while we consider this, you know, this source of debate among them, we then might wonder, well, if they're constantly talking about it and they're not always maybe agreeing on the answer, then how is this a trap to Jesus? Well, the idea there is that, again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they agreed not on a whole lot, but they agreed on what the answer was. They agreed on the fact that the Mosaic Law was really important. They agreed that Moses was the man. I mean, he's in a different category. Moses is the man. He spoke with God. It's like they're having conversations. The commands come from Moses. And so if Jesus were to say something outside of the commandments of Moses, maybe he was going to make up something new. Maybe he was going to reference some different kind of command, uh, 
if he said something outside of the law of Moses, then we can expose him as a heretic and we can refute him among everyone. I mean, everybody in that day thought Moses was the man. So if we can get him to say something contrary, and they thought he would, the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought Jesus is constantly contradicting the law of God with his teaching. And so here, let's set up this moment where everybody gets to hear him do it. And so they wanted to prove that he was the heretic that they thought that he was. And so even though all of this is going on, and their intentions are bad, and their expectations are low, we still need to see it from a different perspective. We still today need to look at this and remember, they just asked God himself what the most important thing is. They asked God, what from us is most important to you? And so think about this. If it's wise for us to do this, like with our spouses, you know, like we want to know, like, what what do you care about most? Like, what is going to keep our relationship strong? If that matters in our relationships with one another, and it does, you should ask your spouse that question, uh, then how much more does that matter in our relationship with God? How much more should we want to learn this from God? God, what do you want most? What do you require most? God, what is the most important thing in our relationship with you? Or in the wording of the time, what's the weightiest matter of the law? And so when we anticipate Jesus' answer, man, we should be leaning in. Like, what's he going to say? What's the answer? What does God himself say is most important from us? And so he begins to answer, verse 29. He answers, and notice he doesn't begin by going, um, and God didn't really care, like commandments, he's not that worried about it. He's so distant from us that he doesn't really see what you do. He doesn't care. No, he doesn't say that. He acknowledges, no, there is a bit of a hierarchy among the commands of God. There is something he cares about most. He says the most important is, and he doesn't say something that contradicted Moses. He doesn't say something that contradicted the law of God. No, he began by quoting what was to them the most familiar verse in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. It's known as the Shema. That Shema, that word Shema means is here in Hebrew because that's the first word of it. Hear, O Israel. And everybody knew this verse at the time. Everybody did. They were praying it a couple times a day. Every time they went for worship, it was being recited. It was, gonna, it was like posted in their house. They, they were memorizing this. Everybody knew this. Everybody was familiar with it. And really, it was kind of the greed upon answer to this question. And notice it begins with a premise, a premise. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, our God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And so this premise to the commandment was a reminder for them about God. It reminded them of his relational nature and the singularity of God. That name Yahweh, that's translated Lord here, that's his covenant name with his people. It's like saying, he's our God. God has initiated a relationship with us. He has provided for us. He has rescued us. He has been faithful to us. He's our God, and he gave us the commandments, not just because, but it's for our good. In fact, in the same chapter Deuteronomy 6, later on in verses 24 to 25, 
God says why he gave him the commands. It says, and the Lord, so Moses is acknowledging this among the people. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, all these laws, all these commandments, to fear him, right, so that we know our proper place, that he gets glory for our good always. For our good always. We need to remember this, that that's why God commands things of us. That's why we're to follow him for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this, or as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Yahweh is our God. He's the only God. He's the one God. He alone is God. And so then based on this premise, he's the only one worthy of us following the command that Jesus gives in verse 30. He's the only one. Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love God with everything. And so when you hear that word love, what comes to mind? You know, it's often said that for us, we've just got one word for love, but the Hebrews and in the Greek language, they had several words, and so it's different for us, right? And so kind of the joke is, you know, like, we use the word love, like I love a burrito, and then I love my spouse, and that, that hopefully that doesn't mean the same thing, you know, and there's these different kind of words for love that they had that we don't have, and so we might think of some funny stuff in our culture as to what love is. Some of us might hear that word and think it's, it's a romantic thing, or we might think, well, it's just more of a kind of a temporary emotional thing, like it's conditional, like I love something right now, but if, the, if something changes, then I don't really love it anymore. But that's not the word that's being used here in the Shema. This word describes a love that is purposeful and complete. It's a purposeful and complete commitment of the will. It's a pure love. That's why it says with all of your heart. It's a passionate love. It's with all of your soul. It's a perceptive love. It's with all of your mind. And it's a powerful love with all of your strength. And so the point by it being laid out like this is not to see, okay, well, there's the different parts of it. No, it's just going, every part of you, love God with all of it. Love God with everything you have. There's nothing that should be held back. There's nothing about us that shouldn't love God. And so Jesus is saying that the most important commandment of God is to exude a focused, comprehensive, complete, all-consuming devotion and adoration to God. That's what's most important. I like how one commentator, Kent Hughes, said this. He said, it doesn't take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. It doesn't take much of a man, but it takes all there is of him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's what God wants. That's what God expects. That's what God commands. But then he doesn't stop there, if you notice. He adds something, right? And this was unexpected, right? He, asked, he was asked what the one important, one first, greatest, most important. But then he adds a second with a complimentary command. He quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18. Again, a verse they would be familiar with. He says, verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as 
yourself. Now, what's interesting about this is not that he said it. They were familiar with this verse. They were familiar with both. But this was the first time that they were paired together. And so he's saying you should look at others like you look at yourself. Your own interests, you should look at others in the same way. The way you care about yourself, you should care about other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that, of course, includes all people. And what I like about this, too, like in Deuteronomy, we get some explanation as to what this actually means. Because this could look very differently to everybody. And he's not talking about, oh, you should, you know, first got to love yourself so much and then you could love your... No, the, the understanding, the, the, the basis of this is you love yourself. You provide for yourself. You care for yourself. And so then, like that, care for others. And then in Leviticus 19, the context is, here's some examples. Verse 10, care for the poor. Don't steal, verse 11. Don't lie, verse 11. Be fair in business dealings, verse 14. Care for the deaf and blind, verse 14. Deal justly with all, verse 15. Avoid slander, verse 16. Don't jeopardize the life of your neighbor, verse 16. Don't harbor hatred against your brother, verse 17. Rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your good, verse 17. Not take revenge, don't take revenge or bear a grudge, against others verse 18 so he says this is what it looks like love your neighbor as yourself he was asked about one command and he gives both and he says i've got to give both because they're inseparable they're inseparable that's why the apostle john whenever he was writing first john he learned from the teaching of jesus and he explained it like this first john 4 19 to 21 we love because he first loved us if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He goes, they're connected. I mean, they're distinguishable, but they're connected. And so he says, if there's somebody who wants to say, no, I really love God, but I hate people, or certain people even, or even your enemies. If I hate certain people, he doesn't say, oh, you're just not that mature yet. You're not, in, you know, you're just inconsistent. He doesn't say that. He says, you're a liar. You're a liar. And the issue is that you don't love God first. He says, that's the issue. They're connected. They can't be separated. And Jesus says, there is no other commandment greater than these. These are the top two. In Matthew's gospel, he also adds, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, that's how they're summed up, right? The first four is about a love for God. The last six is about a love for others. And so he's saying, love God and then love people. He doesn't say being successful, being impressive, being moral, being rich being comfortable, being political, those things matter most. He doesn't say that. He says, love God, love people. That's what he wants. That's what he expects. That's what he commands. And so we should all ask, are these our top priorities in life? Is this what matters most? Is this what I think matters most in my relationship with God? Are these our top priorities? 
in life. That's how Jesus answers. And so then how would the scribe respond? Don't forget, they're in the temple. The scribe's there. All of his you know, fellow scribes, all the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know, probably thousands of people. How's the scribe going to respond? Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You're right. And it seems sincere. And this is unexpected. He says in front of everybody, here's a public affirmation from this scribe, the only time we see it in the Gospels. Jesus, you're right. You have truly said. And he repeats him. He's one. There's no other besides him. To love him with all your heart and understanding and strength, the loved one's neighbor as yourself. Everything you said, Jesus, you're right. And then he even elevates his response to, his, to, an, to an example of understanding. He says, yeah, loving God and your neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's more than that. It's above that. But don't miss what he's saying. Don't miss the situation that he's in. Look, he just said in the temple, out loud, in front of everybody, that Jesus was right and what he said to love God and love people was more important than what everybody was doing at the temple. The thing that Jesus just said he was going to put an end to. He understood it, he got it, he acknowledged it, and he said it for everybody to hear. And so then how does Jesus respond? Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, and so that's why we think it wasn't fake, it's sincere, that he was really beginning to have a change of heart. Jesus said, you've answered wisely. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, he's giving him a compliment here. It's a way for him to say, man, you're, you're starting to get it. You're getting closer. You're getting closer to me. And so, again, picture this whole scene. Jesus, you're right. And then Jesus says, yeah, look, you're right. You're getting it. You're wise. You're coming closer to my kingdom. It's like they're having this, this moment Right? And so I just picture now they're just talking to each other with everybody around. He's like, yeah, you're getting it. Come closer. Come closer. And then what do the Pharisees see? This is not going the direction we wanted it to go. And so they begin to shut it down. And so the scene ends with this statement. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What's going to follow is Jesus being the one to ask them some questions. But we'll pick up with that next time. But why did they stop asking questions? Because they realized, man, Jesus is on a different level. Every answer he gives is brilliant. It's unmatched. It really shows that he is the Son of God. He really is the Word that was made flesh. And so also consider why he was there. We can't miss this. Why was Jesus there? Fielding these questions in the temple, doing all this stuff. Why was he there? Because everybody that was around him, and everybody that has ever lived, was not truly following the greatest commandments. To love God with everything, they weren't doing that. To love their neighbor as their self, they weren't doing that. And so then, God sent his son into the world to fulfill the law completely for us. He came, fulfilled it completely. Think about everything in the life of Jesus. He truly loved God with everything, even to the point of going to the cross. He truly loved his neighbor, all of us, even today. He loves even to the point of going to the cross. 
John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But the thing about that is, he did more than lay down his life for his friends. He was talking to his disciples there, and he did do that. But he also laid down his life for his enemies. The people that were around Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, he would lay down his life for them in just a few days. Us who, in our, our, our nature, on our own, apart from Christ, enemies, that's what the Bible teaches, enemies of Jesus, our nature is opposed to the things of God, lay down our life for us. He came and fulfilled the law perfectly. What God wanted most, Jesus did for us. And then he went to the cross. He took on God's wrath in our place. And by going to the cross and paying the price for our sin, those who would trust in Jesus would be forgiven of their sin, receive the righteousness of Jesus, and be made new. A new heart, new soul, new mind, right? What's John 3 say? You got to be born again. That's what Jesus provided for us. So then we can experience what Romans 5 verse 5 says, that God's love poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So now we can truly love him in return. And remember too, the question before this, Jesus talked about the resurrection. He said, that's a guarantee for those who are in Christ. There will be a resurrection. There will be a day when now we can with all of us, all the time, truly love God and one another. That's what we have to look forward to, and it's going to be for all of eternity. And so whenever we look at this story, we should see all of this. We should keep that in mind. We should recognize our failure and Christ's triumph, that he is the only means for us to truly fulfill the greatest commandments that God has put over our lives. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. And I think that's part of why Jesus told that scribe that at that point at least, that he was just near the kingdom of God, but he wasn't yet in. Because so far what we've seen is he has expressed agreement with Jesus, but he hasn't expressed his need for Jesus. He acknowledges him as a teacher, but he hasn't yet called him his Lord and Savior. And so I don't know how it's going to turn out for him. We don't have those answers. But at that point, he wasn't quite in. And I think I spent most of my week studying that one line, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Like, what does that mean, you're not far from the kingdom of God? And I just read one after another, commentary after commentary, and it's, it was rather surprising how there were all these different points of view. There were some who were saying that what Jesus was really doing is he was making a statement of condemnation. That he's telling them, you're not in the kingdom of God. And partly that is true. He said, you're, you're, you're near it, right, but you're not in. But I think it's more than that. Some would say it's just a commendation, like, hey, you're doing good. You're getting closer. And I think that's true, but I think that isn't completely all of it. I think what it's doing here, I think the, the, the added element is I think from Jesus, there was also an invitation with that statement. It's like saying you're getting closer, but don't stop there. You're getting closer, but you haven't quite entered in. You're getting closer, but you need to realize that the way to enter in is to know the king of the kingdom, and I'm right here. And so what we need to do when we need to look at this story is we need to be asking ourselves, are we just near or are we in? If you're only near this morning, then don't stop there. 
see God as lovely, worthy of all of us. Realize that the basis and the motivation and the outcome of all of the commands of God are love. And then embrace Jesus as the only means of fulfilling God's commands. And you just do that by turning to him in faith. Because he is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the only one who has truly loved God and his neighbor perfectly. So that we could enter into his kingdom. And so are you just near or are you in? And I'll close with this. Look at this. We are studying too about uh, a little bit about... um, about John Wesley, and apparently that line changed his life. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He was about 35 years old. He was raised in a good Christian family. His mom taught him a whole lot. And then, uh, you know, he even became a missionary, and he was traveling around the world, and he was trying to do good work. And then he realized through some challenges in that missionary journey that and he didn't know how much he really loved God. He didn't know how much he really loved people. He was just struggling with it all. But fortunately, there were some, uh, some believers who really loved Jesus that were encouraging him and reminding him of the gospel. And as he was reading this in Mark 12, he said it was like God was just speaking directly to him. That, yeah, maybe you're near, but you're not in. And so then it was that night whenever he just surrendered his life to Jesus and turned to him in faith. And then, well, like, his life was transformed and changed. Then he became somebody who would just preach, and every day, he preached thousands and thousands of sermons, became a great missionary's life was forever changed. And so maybe that could be true for some of us this morning. Maybe you need to realize that, yeah, you're maybe near, you're kind of getting it. Maybe for a long time you've agreed with Jesus, but you haven't yet said, you are my Lord and Savior. I need you, the King of the Kingdom. So consider that for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you're so good. We thank you for your word. Oh, Jesus, you are the king. And so you're amazing with the level of wisdom and insight that you have. But you're so much more than just intelligent and wise. You're so good. You understand that what's most important is loving God with everything, loving one another, And you did that for us. We trust in you as the only means of fulfilling God's commands. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to love more and more. And we look forward to the day whenever that will be all there is. Love for God and love for one another. We can't wait. And so in the meantime, I pray that you would use us to share the love of God, to spread the gospel, so that more and more would get to experience an eternity in the midst of that kind of love. Holy Spirit, I pray that if anyone here now is unsure, maybe they're just thinking, I'm, I guess I'm near, I'm not sure if I'm in, that would be a simple confessing that trusting in Jesus in their heart confessing with their mouth Jesus is alive pray this in Jesus name